Demonology is not just another crackpotology. It is the ancient and scholarly study of the monsters and demons who have seemingly coexisted with man throughout our history. Thousands of books have been written on the subject, many of them authored by educated clergymen, scientists, and scholars, and uncounted numbers of well-documented demonic events are readily available to every researcher. The manifestations and occurrences described in this imposing literature are similar, if not entirely identical, to the UFO phenomenon itself. Victims of demonomania, possession, suffer the very same medical and emotional symptoms as the UFO contactees. Demonomania is so common that it has spawned the minor medical and psychiatric study of demonopathy. Throughout most of history, the manifestations of demonology and demonopathy have been viewed from a religious perspective and explained as the work of the devil. The bizarre manipulations and ill effects described in the demonological literature are usually regarded as the result of a great unseen conflict between God and the devil. In UFO lore, the same conflict has been observed, and the believers have explained it as a space war between the Guardians, good guys from outer space who are protecting our planet, and some evil extraterrestrial race. The manifestations are the same, only the frame of reference is different. The devil and his demons can, according to literature, manifest themselves in almost any form, and can physically imitate anything from angels to horrifying monsters with glowing eyes. Strange objects and entities materialize and dematerialize in these stories, just as the UFOs and their splendid occupants appear and disappear, walk through walls, and perform other supernatural feats. Did ancient man misinterpret UFO manifestations by placing them in a religious context? Apparently not. The literature indicates that the phenomenon carefully cultivated the religious frame of reference in early times, just as the modern manifestations have carefully supported the extraterrestrial frame of reference. Operation Trojan Horse is merely the same old game in a new updated guise. The Devil's Emissaries of yesteryear have been replaced by the mysterious Men in Black. The quasi-angels of biblical times have become magnificent spacemen. The demons, devils, and false angels were recognized as liars and plunderers by early man. These same imposters now appear as long-haired Venusians. Ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigan, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Nick, and I am joined by the deeply confused duo, Jay and Rory Wicks. Accurate. Hello. On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigan. Here we are, back in the basement, where we belong. 
I do not belong in this basement. It is very cold. Get back in your dog kennel. What? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm skipping, ju- I'm skipping forward a few years. Oh, God damn it. Just like the psychic painted. Well, at least now you know where uh, where life's going to lead you. Yeah, that's a lot of, you know, that has to be a lot of comfort. A lot of people go through life not really knowing what's in their future, but you know a dog kennel. Will I get a blanket? If you do what the cult asks of you. And how does that work with me exactly? You'll be in the other dog kennel, clearly. I no longer like this. Um, where's our actual dog going to live? Your bed. She'd love that. (laughs) (laughs) Buffy, are you wearing a Nick suit again? (laughs) No, no, Buffy's just going to be my first cultist. God damn it, stop manipulating my dog for your own weird ends. I'll give her Uh, food and she'll sell you down the river immediately. Are you sure? Yes. If if I pull a bully (laughs) stick out of my back pocket, you better believe she'll do it. Like people, if people want to try and break in here, all they have to do is bring food. That's fair. Don't say that out loud with your mouth. Too late. She is an utterly worthless animal. <laughs> no, she's wonderful. She's just not a good guard dog. I'm not saying she isn't wonderful. I love her. I would kill or die for her with zero hesitation and actually with great enthusiasm. But she is still an utterly worthless animal. All right, on that depressing statement, <laughs> we are here today to talk about Operation Trojan Horse by John Keel. Yes, we are finally diving back into Keel. Yes. I've been looking forward to this since we covered Mothman Prophecies. That was episode one. Yeah. Yep. This I, is episode a lot more than that. Episode 25? T- 30? No, this is, no, I think this is 24. 24. This is episode 24 officially. Okay. Yeah. Uh, not counting the midnight chats. Right. That's right. a different series. So yeah. yeah. So uh, what'd you guys think as we dove back into Keel's paranoia soaked world? Um, I, I really, I, I really liked it. Uh, John Keel appeals to the paranoid, bitter, resentful part of me that, that lives at the center of my heart. Um, of it's just like, you are, you're right, John, you're right, John. They are all liars and charlatans and we should <laughs> respond with extreme hostility. you know the way i treated every resident advisor when i was going to college yeah that makes sense i I could see why that would uh, that would uh speak to you (laughs) yeah no i i i really enjoyed the book uh i don't think that's a surprise um john keel's mind is a is a mysterious place and it's very fascinating um and you know uh, one thing i i was honestly i thought i was going to be intimidated by the book but it was a really it was really easy to read oh i mean yeah that's that to me, though, is one of the the strongest points of Keel's style. Is uh, he he writes like a journalist, mm-hmm. but he doesn't. He writes like a journalist, but it isn't as dry as a lot of journalists write. Yeah, there's a lot of personality in his writing, but you you can very much tell that he is used to writing in a way to make uh complex ideas attainable by anyone who picks it up, anyone with a fourth grade reading level. Yeah. All right, so are we ready? To, are we ready to begin? You guys ready to talk about uh, Operation Trojan Horse? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Quote: The real problems hidden behind the UFO phenomenon are staggering and so complex that they seem almost incomprehensible at first. John Keel writes in the foreword to this book: Quote: The popular beliefs and speculation are largely founded upon biased reporting, gross misinterpretations, and the inability to see beyond the limits of any one of many frames of reference. Cunning techniques of deception and psychological warfare have been employed by the UFO source to keep us confused and skeptical. 
and man's tendency to create a deep and inflexible belief on the basis of little or no evidence has been exploited. As begins what many consider to be Keel's greatest contribution to the canon of UFO literature, Operation Trojan Horse. In this book, Keel sought to take a massive step back and perform a quantitative analysis on the body of UFO reports, which encompassed as wide of a scope as possible with the ultimate goal of analyzing any patterns in the data. Like other researchers such as Jacques Vallée, he included events from ancient folklore, religion, and myth within his body of evidence, and analyzed them under the context of UFOs, or, more specifically, through the lens of his ultra-terrestrial theory. Those who are familiar with Keel or have listened to our episode on the Mothman prophecies will know that Keel believed the vast majority, if not all, paranormal or anomalous events come from a singular root, being extra-dimensional entities who exist outside the normal flow of our space-time and whom are able to adopt a myriad of forms to fit our expectations. According to Keel, these outsider entities, dubbed the ultra-terrestrials, are engaged in a long-term game of cosmic pranks, manipulations, and even violence in service of some greater plan we can scarcely imagine. A plan that goes back to the very beginnings of our species and may indicate the ultimate fate of humanity. To begin his analysis, Keel amassed a wealth of UFO sighting records from newspapers across the United States, focusing only on the most reputable accounts where the object was seen by several people or one credible witness such as a law enforcement officer, public official, or person of great repute within their community. He then took to the road, traveling between UFO hotspots and speaking with as many witnesses and contactees as would talk to him. While he did encounter a liar or two, whom he claims to have easily spotted due to his journalistic training and experience writing propaganda for the U.S. Army, the vast majority of the witnesses he found were of stable mind, and most did not even want to discuss their experience for fear of the cultural stigma. In fact, many would not even talk to him without the promise of secrecy, which Keel did give them partly to earn their trust and also so his investigation would go unnoticed by the UFO community, whom Keel believed were guilty of manipulating or censoring data to align with their own quasi-religious belief that UFOs were purely extraterrestrial in origin. Through this process, he learned that many witnesses' experiences mirrored each other's to an unnerving degree. In this, we must remember that the body of UFO folklore was very young when he was performing this research in the mid to late 1960s, and many of the stories he found came from people on opposite sides of the country who did not know each other, were unlikely to have been able to collaborate on the details, and had no interest in UFOs prior to their experience. He found that most sightings occurred along roads, usually while the experiencer was driving through a rural area or between towns, and many witnesses suffered medical effects after their sighting, namely red swollen eyes and a burning sensation on their skin, both symptoms common with radiation exposure. Here, Keel reached an impasse. He had approached the UFO issue with the belief that the phenomenon was a form of hallucination-inducing mass hysteria. However, as he spoke with the level-headed and often mentally scarred witnesses, he began to believe there must be something more to the phenomenon. After he completed his UFO road trip, Keel sat down with the 10,000 individual incident reports he had managed to gather, focusing primarily on Type 1 sightings meaning that an object was seen flying at low levels by a reliable witness, and the sighting could not be explained away as a misidentified meteor or conventional aircraft when checked against the astronomical and aeronautical data obtained from NASA. Once he was done, he had whittled his cases down to two files, 
one constituting the Type 1 sightings, accounting for 730, or 7.3% of the collection, with the rest either discarded or classified as Type 2, indicating a craft was seen flying at high levels and moving in anomalous ways. And what he found was that a large number of cases did seem to follow a pattern. Sightings happened most frequently on Wednesdays and Saturdays, between the hours of 8 p.m. and 11 p.m. Major flaps, regardless of country, almost always begin on a Wednesday, and stranger still, they seem to align with geopolitical boundaries. For example, a flap over Arkansas in 1966 included hundreds of sightings which, when mapped, appeared to form a straight line across the state. Yet, when he followed that trajectory, he found that the sightings ended abruptly at the state line, as if the craft occupants were somehow aware of and honored our political boundaries. Sightings occurred most often in Midwestern states, in remote areas such as the countryside or swamps, and most reported landings happened at night, all of which, to Keel, carries a sinister connotation. Quote, They come in the dead of the night, operating in areas where the risks of being observed are slight. They pick the middle of the week for their peak activities, and they confine themselves rather methodically to the political boundaries of specific states at specific times. All of this smacks of a covert military operation, a secret buildup in remote areas. Keel then began to widen his scope and asks the question, how long has this been going on anyways? Most in ufology at the time would claim that the saucer sightings began with Kenneth Arnold's 1947 sighting of nine flying disks. However, Keel believes this is only due to a failure to look at the historic or mythic events with a critical eye. As an example, he forwards the now popular idea that many biblical events, when broken down to their individual elements, mirror the UFO experience to a startling degree. As Keel writes, quote, We no longer run to the temple when we see a strange, unearthly object in the sky. We run to the Air Force or to the learned astronomers. In ancient times, the priests would tell us that we had sinned and therefore God was showing us signs in the sky. Today, our learned leaders simply tell us that we are mistaken or crazy or both. Furthermore, he argues that the idea that contact began in 1947 had, for many of what he dubbed the UFO cultists, become a central element to their mythology. As such, they felt all too justified in ignoring earlier sightings, including a photo of a cigar-shaped craft taken by Mexican astronomer Jose Benilla in 1883, or another sighting of a flying disc by farmer John Martin in 1878. And in much the same way, even older stories of fantastic sky ships, gods, angels, or winged demons end up relegated to the bin of irrelevancy, with most ufologists unable to see past the visible manifestation of the craft to the core elements of the experience, which remain unerringly consistent over the centuries of recorded human history. But why hasn't anyone, save for Keel and a handful of other ufologists, noticed this? In Keel's opinion, it is because we often focus too much on the thunder and not the lightning. In other words, ufologists are often more concerned with who saw something and how reliable they are, as opposed to what they saw. And while part of this may be due to a very valid desire to create a sense of legitimacy for the field, Keel would argue that legitimacy was never going to be possible, not because of government cover-ups or social stigmas, but because the phenomenon wants it that way, and the absurd elements reported by many experiencers only work to reinforce in the minds of most that there isn't anything to the UFO mystery other than crackpots and fictions. The key example of this being the sightings of soft objects. Most ufologists in Keel's time were hyper-focused on the hypothesis 
that all UFOs are extraterrestrial in nature and hence come from another planet. And to support that assertion, many only focused on sightings of nuts and bolts craft. However, in Kiel's analysis, this leaves the vast majority of sightings out of the official record. More often, people reported free-flowing balls of plasma, energetic humanoid forms, glowing clouds, or seemingly mundane craft which exhibited behavior that is incongruent with our understanding of physical reality. Some have appeared to be translucent, like a ghost, while others appear to phase in and out of our world, often right before the witness's eyes. To Kiel, all of this indicates that these objects are paraphysical in nature, meaning that they are not made of solid matter as we understand it, or that they need to lower their personal frequency to take solid form. Even Kenneth Arnold, the ETH supporter's star witness, later came around to believing that the craft he saw were not made of matter, but rather a sort of energy body, a belief likely influenced by the hitchhiker effects he and his family suffered after his sighting. But if that was true, then why do they look like spaceships? Here, Kiel presents the core of his argument, which will be built upon in subsequent chapters being that the UFO phenomenon is merely the most recent form in a long-running hoax being perpetuated on mankind by another intelligence, the ultra-terrestrials. They have always been with us, wearing disguises as our gods, angels, spirits, and monsters, and their game has both delighted and tormented us since our earliest days. In this way, the UFOs are a Trojan horse, a false front meant to lead us to one particular conclusion so we don't notice what they're actually up to. Which brings us to our first discussion question. Woo! So, Kiel and others arrived at the paraphysical or ultra-terrestrial theory, namely due to the incredible shape-changing and reality-warping abilities exhibited by these craft, and the historical precedent for the same abilities also being displayed by various supernatural entities. However, one must wonder, could he have it backwards? Could the evidence we have seen also be explained through some sort of hyper-advanced super-science belonging to a true extraterrestrial civilization. I mean, yes. <laughs> absolutely it could. We can we can cut a heart out of a dead guy and stick it in an almost dead guy and then just shock it with some lightning that we have tamed and uh then the heart starts beating and the almost dead guy isn't almost dead anymore and he can just walk around with that dead guy's heart. Yeah. Well, I understand like what you're getting at there. I'm really glad you didn't go to medical school. I, I'm just really imagining being there, like clutching my chest. My, my lights are fading and you're above me going, don't worry, I have tamed lightning. That's what it is. <laughs> but the point is, uh, actually, no, I don't think we start the heart with electricity. Irrelevant. Anyway, uh, th yes. They of use little paddles yeah, to restart the heart. Okay, do we do we restart a stop yeah. a stopped heart with electricity? I, it doesn't or? restart it actually. It just it just gets it pumping again. It basically takes a heart that's out of rhythm and forces it back on. Yeah. Okay. Once it's completely stopped, they can't do anything. They have little paddles that they put around your heart when it's when your chest is open. <laughs> I know I've seen those. They're very cool. Yeah. Um. The point is, yes, of, of course, it could be hyper advanced technology of like it's. It, it's entirely like, you know, we were we were kind of talking about in I believe in in twin telepathy or one of the others about vibrational frequencies. Mm -hmm. And it's entirely possible that there are that there are people from other planets or other dimensions that can just they have little machines that live in their pockets and they can just flick them on and off 
whenever they want to just change their frequencies. And that could explain why they're phasing in and out of whatever. And maybe some of those maybe some of those machines aren't as fast acting. Hence, we have the ones moving through the color light spectrum as they kind of solidify into our world. And like and the whole thing about some of the some of the UFOs, some of the craft seems to move in a way that is more analogous to a living being that is actually flapping wings or slithering through the air. That can also be technology. Have you seen some of the animatronics we've come up with? Mm-hmm. That 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 shit surpasses the uncanny valley and just goes into your brain accepts it as a living thing. If we can do that, they can definitely do that. True. That's fair. Yeah. Rory, what do you think? So I think, I mean, my answer is ultimately similar to Jay's in the sense of, uh, sure, maybe. Um, Because a lot of this, like a lot of John Keel's theories, just in general, are based off of his, you know, his understanding, his ideas, yada, 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 whatever. Well, everything that we're talking about here is based on our own perceptions and what we can perceive and what, and John Keel even points this out. We have very limited capabilities in terms of what we can see here. Yeah. Or I guess see and hear in terms of what, you know, because of there's so many other frequencies, literally, you know, in terms of sound and, and, and sight that are happening all around us. We know that because if we could see everything we'd see the waves of energy that are going from like the wires in our, our, our all around our, our, our uh, like all, all around our city from the telephone wires and all this other, you know, nonsense, whatever. So theoretically, if this other species civilization is one that just exists inside a frequency that we cannot perceive, but they are physical then sure, that that would, in its own way, make sense. Um, it's it's like the the Men in Black thing. You know, they kick open the door and there's like a whole other world there. It's possible that that's something in a way that's happening. You know, it's possible that there is some greater physical uh, species or civilization that lives in and around us at at all times. Um, the problem I have with that theory is that it doesn't explain enough. Um, because it, to me, that doesn't explain why there's poltergeist activity around uh, you know, people who have seen UFOs. That doesn't explain why um, you know, it doesn't explain the similarities to like, I don't know, between. Uh, what's the right way to put this between like my, like thinking about like mindfulness and how we can all, we can interact with, you know, consciousness, whatever, uh, through meditation and all these other things that have been happening for thousands and thousands of years. It doesn't explain that that is also somehow that, 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 that idea is also somehow connected to all this because it is in it to me. You I mean, know? Maybe I mean you're not wrong. We do look at things like CE five or human initiated contact. That is straight up calling aliens through meditation. Right. There is some 
sort of shared mechanism here. Right. And that's, and that, that's, and unless, I suppose, unless, you know, we can do that because they, uh, they can also tap into that same, you know, energy. Cause that's ultimately, that's what it is, right? Consciousness is energy. So, uh, theoretically, it, it's some kind of energy force. So maybe they can also tap into it too, which is how the, you know, when we reach out via like CE5, they can respond. Maybe, but I, I, I guess, I mean, I hate to say it. It's just kind of boring. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that. I think I, I, the entire time I was reading this book, I had Arthur C. Clarke's quote running through my head of like, I think it's any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yes. Right. And I realized that I, much like you, Roy, I don't buy it, uh, it partially just due to the massive diversity of the manifestations. Um, but that said, I, I, wa- I was thinking if there was a technology. OK, so the, our brains are basically electrical engines, right? Right. Uh, all of our thoughts. It's like you're saying it's energy. It's in our in our gray matter. Uh, we, we electrocute the gray matter and it becomes thoughts. Well, that's an electrical system. If I had a ray gun that let me shoot a beam of electromagnetic energy into your mind to affect what your senses were reporting to you or affect even your consciousness, then I then I could definitely see this being on the table because then they can make you see anything they wanted to. Any any and everything weird that has ever happened could be just someone shooting that into your head so that you're not remembering seeing a horrible fungal growth man walking through the yard because maybe that's what they look like. So every time a UFO, uh, uh, you know, you see uh, an alien or UFO, it, really what they're doing is just doping you with LSD so you see something a little less. Yeah, so you're not seeing what they actually are. Um, that said, I there's it's a completely unprovable assertion. Just like the ultra-terrestrial theory is largely unprovable. It's, right. Once you're dealing with something that has that much control over your perception of reality, um, it becomes impossible for you to truly understand it because you're not really seeing it from the outside. You're seeing it, you know, you're, you're seeing the, the version of it that it wants you to see. And once that's at, at play, it's, it's pointless to really even probe too far because it's just going to be a hall of mirrors. You're just going to endlessly run into more manifestations. You'll never know if you've hit bottom or not. You'll never know if you actually saw what the thing actually looked like or encountered the actual entity at the end of that road. Right. Yeah. No fair. I think ultimately for me, at least I'm, I, I think I'm just past the, the idea of a physical answer to the phenomenon because it just doesn't with everything that we've read in the last 24 books, it just doesn't make sense to me anymore. And and that, that I completely understand that. I, I think personally, I, I still fall into the camp of, I think all of it's going on. So I think there are probably entities akin to Keel's ultra terrestrials. I think there absolutely are extraterrestrials out there. I don't know if they visited us, but that said, I definitely think that there are other species and civilizations out there. Um, I just don't necessarily think that that is, I mean, maybe they visited us. Maybe. I just don't think that the majority of the phenomenon is uh, is covered by that. I don't think that that's what's happening here. Well, and that's completely fair. And for all we know, uh, actually, Keel brings this up in the book. For all we know, 
there are alien species and they're also trapped up in the ultra terrestrials right. games. They see maybe they see B-52 bombers in their skies and the ultra terrestrials are just playing a big game of swapsies. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I could see that for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, the other idea that uh, I, I've actually I've seen this floating around. It's a neat idea of what if what we're seeing is aliens, but what they're doing is they're not leaving their planet. It's a form of advanced astral projection. They are they are projecting their mental bodies out to our planet, and they're sufficiently advanced enough in their I don't know uh, psychic power, consciousness juice <laughs> that they are able to uh, coalesce into sometimes physical forms. Nick, for the last ninety seconds, I've been toying with that exact thought and trying to figure out how to articulate it. Interesting. Ah. Good. The telepathy's kicking in. It is Wednesday at 8 o'clock exactly. Yeah, so we are entering into peak phenomenon time. And also, we've all been locked in a box together for two years. Exactly. Actually, another thing on the Wednesday phenomenon thing, which, by the way, makes no sense to me. I don't know what to make of it, but the, the math works. But it would be a sick uh, band name. But, but it's uh, kind of interesting to me, though, that we record... In the yeah. peak window every week. Yes, I know. I thought about that. Like too. <laughs> we have, we are channeling the high strangeness of the universe into this audio file. Yep. All right. Are we uh, ready to move on to section two? Let's go. Woo! The world is an illusion. Nothing more than energy, which has been slowed down enough to give the appearance of physical matter. In truth, physicality is nothing more than the result of our atoms vibrating at a certain frequency which in turn forms the basis of our entire material reality, a reality of which we are only able to perceive a small part. The electromagnetic spectrum runs far both above and below the range of human perception, which is why we don't see our skies as crowded with millions of streams of radio waves, cell phone calls, and digital transmissions. To demonstrate this point, Keel compares us to a single-celled germ sitting in a Petri dish. To it, that dish is the entire universe. But when the scientist on the other end of the microscope pokes a small needle into the dish, the germ would only see the tip as an anomalous object appearing in the skies above. In much the same way, the UFO phenomenon could be nothing more than the fingertips of some greater intelligence poking its way into our world. You never left the palm of my hand. This idea is an old one, found in the writings of many occultists, spiritualists, and religious texts, and presented through the frame of reference of their own unique belief systems. That other plane in theology becomes Valhalla, the field of reeds, heaven, and the thousand other names we give for that other world, while Buddhism outright states in their core philosophy the false nature of reality. And it is an idea which the phenomenon itself has expressed a thousand times under a thousand different names. For example, one of Kiel's silent contactees told him that he had received the following message from an entity masquerading as an extraterrestrial known as Orion of the Ashtar Intergalactic Command. Quote, The saucers which you speak of as such are in reality the space bodies of certain aggregates of consciousness. They exist duodimensionally. That is, they penetrate both the third and fourth dimensions simultaneously, or can, if they wish, confine themselves to either one of these. Their purpose has been, and still is for the time being, to interlace these two realms of consciousness which are seemingly separate. Whatever the heck that means. In support of this idea, Keel presents the mystery of the purple blobs. Described by witnesses as amorphous blobs of purple glowing gas, these forms have been seen as often as, if not more frequently, than the mechanical craft. 
The blobs move as if under intelligent control and otherwise operate like any other UFO, but go unreported due to the absurdity of their nature. Keel then brings up the fact that the highest frequency color the human eye can see is violet, indicating to him that these clouds may in fact be unformed UFOs, existing just barely within our perceptible range. Then, as the craft shifts down into our frequency, it too descends through the colors of our visible spectrum, explaining why so many crafts shift colors as they descend down upon the witness, and why many witnesses describe crafts glowing red just before they land, being the lowest frequency in our perceptible range. In other words, witnesses are seeing them phase down into our reality in real time, shifting to the lowest frequency when it comes time to make physical contact with the elements of our world. This idea takes on troubling connotations when we also consider that the UFO occupants seem to know an awful lot about us. Contactees often report that the craft occupants know their names, the names of their associates, and even where they're headed. As an example, he presents the story of Mrs. Malley, who, in December of 1967, was driving home when she saw a large, fiery red disc follow and then hover over her car. Her motor died, and her son in the back seat seemed to enter into a deep trance from which he could not be roused. Her car then pulled itself over to the shoulder, and a white beam enveloped her from above. Suddenly, she became aware of a strange voice, telling her that a good friend had been in a terrible accident. The car then drove itself back out onto the road, the craft departed, and she regained control of the vehicle. The next day, she learned that her friend was indeed involved in an auto accident. This implies that the UFO occupant somehow not only knew who she was, but where she was, what her relationship was to a person many miles away, and what was about to happen to that person. Assuming that the spacemen aren't dedicating unthinkable time, personnel, and resources to spying on every single human on Earth, then these others must somehow be able to tap into the knowledge locked either in our minds or in some sort of cosmic informational field akin to our concept of the collective unconsciousness. To Keel, all of this indicates that these beings somehow exist above or to the side of everyday reality from which they can observe all human events. Adding to this argument is the phenomenon's troubling ability to not only know what is happening in our world, but their apparent ability to prophesize our future. To investigate this more thoroughly, Keel turns to the prophets and prophecies of biblical times, where he analyzes a series of biblical encounters between prophets and angels through the lens of the UFO phenomenon. For example, in the book of Zechariah, he witnesses an angel described as a flying roll, 15 feet wide by 8 feet tall. And of course, there is Ezekiel's encounter with a skycraft and the four men with lamp-fire eyes who disembarked to speak with him. The prophet David saw flying wheels of flame who gave him his prophecies, and even Joseph Smith of the Mormon faith claimed to have received a visit from a luminous being who appeared beside his bed. Some of the angelic visitations even sound much like how an ancient person might describe a spaceship. For example, John witnessed an angel who was described as being clothed in a cloud, with a rainbow on its head and pillars of flames for legs. Taken in another light, this could easily describe a glowing sphere, adorned with lights and surrounded in vapor as it descends on jets of flame. Furthermore, much like the modern stories of alien breeding programs and intergalactic booty calls, the uh-huh. angels of the Bible and other such entities seem overtly concerned with human propagation. For example, Abraham's elderly wife was past childbearing age until a visit from three mysterious men allowed her to give birth. It is also interesting to note 
that the number three turns up often in the Bible, such as the three wise men present at the birth of Christ, and in UFO literature, where men in black often come in threes. All that has changed, Keel argues, is the frame of reference through which these encounters are interpreted. Quote, Thus in biblical days, when men were seeking some indication that there was a higher power, they almost automatically considered objects in the sky to be of religious import. During wartime, such objects were regarded with suspicion as possible weapons of the enemy, and in the present era, when spaceflight is the national goal of two major nations, there is a strong tendency to accept unidentified flying objects as extraterrestrial visitants. And this trend is not unique to the Bible. Early Greek and Roman historians noted many strange aerial objects which were attributed to their gods. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was said that a light so intense it turned night to day descended over Jerusalem. A flaming, cross-shaped object once appeared over the army of Emperor Constantine and followed them on their march. And, in what may be one of the most fantastic-sounding UFO events in history, the historical record shows that in April of 1561, a large number of plates, blood-colored crosses, and two great tubes were seen engaging in a massive aerial battle over Basel, Switzerland. And it is also not a trend that went away. In fact, before Kiel's silver discs or our modern Tic Tacs, North America went through a massive flap of sightings of fantastic, steampunkish airships. But before we get there, we have our second discussion question. <gasps> so this book was released in 1970, and much has changed in the past 50 years. Spaceflight is no longer a national imperative, and the people today have largely entirely different concerns than those in Kiel's time. Do you think we have seen the phenomenon continue to evolve with us? And what is different about the behavior of the phenomenon today as compared to 50 years ago? Hmm. So, do I think the phenomenon has continued to evolve with us? Um, yes and no. So, I think it has in the sense that it, um, if we're, you know, thinking about it from a keel perspective, that it has shifted how it appears to us. So in that sense, I believe, yes, it's evolved. It's changing with what our brains can fathom and create now. You know, um, you know, we're no longer seeing giant boats in the sky with wings. You know, we're seeing saucers and Tic Tacs and cigar-shaped craft, which has also been seen, you know, as far back as the 1800s. I mean, also, like, go back even back to the 1500s, the two great tubes could e described in Basel, Switzerland, could easily be cigars. Sure, for sure. And, and, I mean, and it's not like cigars haven't been around for a long fucking time. If anything, I would I would make the argument that we've de-evolved from the phenomenon, okay? So, and let, here, here's why. For thousands of years, if we're assuming any kind of interaction with angels, deities, any of that could potentially have been the phenomenon, that we take a lot less stock in that now than we did thousands of years ago. That's true. Um, people nowadays will lose their keys and say it was the fairies. But if that something had happened like that thousands of years ago and we lost something, we would legitimately blame the fairies. <laughs> you know, it, you know, it weirdly makes me think of secret teachers. We have let go of that side of our brain in a lot of ways. You know, 
uh, where think we think too almost too rational now, too logical. We lost our magical thinking. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And I wonder if that's a big part of why it's not. I don't want to say not as prevalent, but it's so different now with us. If we were in a time when we were when we didn't know about you know, all the science and and shit, so it was literally just magic to us. Um, they maybe they were more willing to show that maybe it was the phenomenon was more willing to show itself to us at that time. But now, since we're like, nah, you know, it, it's not it, it's not anything. It's not aliens. It's not magic. Isn't real. You know, there's there's nothing to this. The phenomenon is like, okay, well, you know, we're going to just be giant ships in the sky then. You know, not saying that's the only thing that happens because obviously that's not the case. But I feel like, you know, there's, you know, even in religion, we say, you know, the time of the prophets is past. Why? Like, why? What, what's different now than, than when the prophets were? Because realistically, not much has actually changed outside of our technological advancement. You know, society is still society, you know, what, whatever. But ultimately, I feel like, if anything, we've just separated ourselves from that part of us that w- could interact with the phenomenon or would even be willing to interact with the phenomenon. So, so the answer there is the phenomenon hasn't evolved. We have. Yeah, and and I don't know, I don't necessarily know that it's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, it it just is. Um, I I I think it's very different now, and maybe it's because they they no longer can present that no no longer the phenomenon can no longer pre- present itself to us as gods because nobody would accept that. Uh, maybe it's because we wouldn't accept prophets anymore, you know, uh, because we would just see them as as crazy, and people would write them off as cult leader potential cult leaders or or schizophrenics um which maybe um and again i think it comes back to we've just kind of lost touch with that side of uh, uh, of ourselves you know i that's a that's a good point i didn't think about that jay what do you think um most likely yes the the phenomenon has evolved Going off of the perspective that I've developed of the the theoretical framework of looking at the phenomenon as if it is the karmic cycle, as in it does not make decisions, it is input, output, stimulus, response, um, then I would completely agree with Rory. The phenomenon evolved exclusively because we evolved. We are the stimulus. Its response will change depending on the stimulus that we are giving it. Right. My other... The other side of me is going, I don't have enough information on how the phenomenon currently behaves in order to make that assessment. Because, again, as Rory said, we are burying it in the backyard and tamping down the dirt with a shovel and then pouring concrete foundations on top of it and covering it in gazebos. You know, I was thinking about regarding that is so Keel. Keel called around to every newspaper that he could find the number four in the nation to get their UFO stories. And he got over 10,000 stories. Yes. I got to imagine that you wouldn't get a fraction of those if you tried to do the same thing today. You don't see you very seldom see those just little blurbs in local papers about so and so saw a crap. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, whereas it, I, I feel like it used to be a lot more prevalent, especially you go back to the 60s, 70s, around there. Mm-hmm. It was much more acceptable to report on those things in your local newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. And... <laughs> And there's a lot of, there absolutely it used to be much more acceptable. And there's probably a lot of complex sociological factors that have very subtly shifted that. Um, uh, it's, it, uh, yeah, over, over the decades of, honestly, I wonder if, I wonder if like post, if like post Vietnam America just did not have the emotional capacity to embrace anything that was not hard reality anymore. I mean that's possible. They they got a giant dose of reality on their television screens. Yeah, and 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 the reason that I think that like I'm not an expert in in that, but what I do know is that um the 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 trend of hyper realism in a lot of major American movies directly comes from the aftermath of 9/11 and mm. the kind of severe disillusionment and collective trauma that we went through has led to people rejecting things that they considered more fanciful just just out of becoming deeply jaded and i think that that i think that that jaded suspicious attitude is part of what drove the ufo phenomenon or the uap phenomenon whatever we want to call it now further and further underground and again it's he'll directly reference that legitimacy and respectability was never going to be a thing that we should have chased and that it's probably done us more harm than good uh, it's, it's, as a member of the queer community, uh, I understand that intimately. Yes. Um, especially as you know, it's you know, Roy, you still use neo pronouns. You encounter that shit every single day. Yeah. Um, no, getting misgendered at work is um just an everyday part of my life. And then you, and then you try to go to your community for comfort, and they're like, "Well, maybe you shouldn't be using pronouns that straight people don't understand." It's like that's not the fucking point. Yeah, and if it's not that, it's maybe I shouldn't present as mask as I do. Yeah, absolutely. And um, but I I think <clears throat> so. What I'm actually getting at is, it's I feel like I don't have enough information on how the phenomenon currently behaves, just because. When people do talk about it, they talk about it only with small, intimate groups of people that they feel like they can trust or they speak about it anonymously with no way of of like Akil is correct in his assessment that it's like sometimes we get way too obsessed with who the person is and not with what they saw. But at a certain point. We still need to vet these people because sometimes someone in Wyoming tells a lie and Yeah. So so basically it's it's likely that the phenomenon has evolved and changed because of many many reasons but I I also don't feel comfortable necessarily making that assessment just because if it has evolved in big dramatic ways how the hell would we know nobody's talking about it anymore Well I, I agree with that I mean we don't hear about landings in farmers farmers fields anymore uh or you know those low level sightings where it buzzed someone's car that said, uh, one thing that occurred to me when we were talking there is one of the biggest, in my opinions, developments uh, in the history of our species that's happened in the last 50 years is the Internet. Yep. Uh, for the first time, we're more connected to everyone in the world than we've ever been. And I do wonder if the Internet kind of plays a role in tampering down those stories from reaching us because uh, it gives a completely anonymous way for the contactee 
to get to say their story, kind of vent it out, get it out there. And then it's online. But anyone who reads an anonymous online post will not believe it. Yeah, it's true. I'm sure that they, I'm sure if we looked hard enough, we'd find blogs for days about their you about people's personal UFO sightings. There, there are several subreddits I follow that are nothing but people posting their personal experiences. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's definitely out there. Um, now, a couple thoughts I had personally, I was because I, I I've been t- t- uh, chewing on this for a few days now. Uh, so one thing though is that you said there are no more profits. The age of profits has passed. We don't, and we don't hear about, uh, especially the UFO profits. We don't hear about them anymore. That said, I I do think about uh, UFO social media influencers, specifically mm-hmm. the cultish ones like Anjali or Sadia yeah. Mountain Wisdom. These people who say, well, I'm in contact with aliens and they're saying next is going to happen on this date. And we all think, yeah, they're a liar. They're LARPers. Uh, But we'll talk about this later on in the summary. But that same game has been played before. And what if these people aren't liars? They're what if they're being lied to? They're being led to look like a fool. Yeah, no, and it absolutely could be. Um, And and regarding how the visible manifestations have changed. Man, I've been trying to figure out where the hell the Tic Tac design came from because mm-hmm. it looks like a propane tank, and that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah. But um, well, but 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 the other thing is that, like Rory was saying earlier, in the modern age, for a lot of people, technology and science trumps religion. So it could be that the whole reason they're developing the Tic Tac look is because the silver saucers are old hat now. They're they're part of our cheesy 1950s sci-fi, and so people disregard them immediately. But hey, that sleek-looking Tic Tac, that's new and white and fast. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I've, I've ranted several times on here about, like, what if some of these video visitors are just teenagers out with mom's car, and they're just screwing around with the humans because they're pretty sure they can do it without consequence? Like... Cars don't look like they did in the 50s. It's true. Like it, and I know, I know we hate nuts and bolts, but like. I wouldn't say I don't hate. I'm okay okay with nuts and bolts. I just don't buy it right now. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's fair. But like it, it, it's still entirely possible that like, even if these crafts are like paraphysical, which I agree that they probably are, that doesn't mean that their designs don't change over time. Because what if. Okay, like here's here's complete random speculation that might as well just be science fiction. What if most people on foreign planets are not actually good at conjuring paraphysical craft and they need like, you know, that machine like in their pocket to be able to manifest it and you can buy different machines that'll make them look different uh, ways and it's like, it's like yeah. A pocket car. Yeah, it's a pocket car and like what if pocket cars just look like Tic Tacs now and it's just like, dude, did you still go out in one of the flying airship? Oh, oh, motherfucker, you are all over TikTok. No. It's like seeing <laughs> someone drive down the street in a Model T. Basically, yeah. yeah. One of my coworkers has a Model T. <gasps> I, 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 now it's I'm, dope. And now I really want to do a dive and see if like post-1920 there was even one airship sighting just so we can find the guy who's not with it. <laughs> <laughs> or the it's the fucking hipster alien. So, but uh, on another note, though, because we're talking about technology, right, and how the remaining technological craft, how our our faith in religion or gods has diminished uh, as a people, it seems like, even though, obviously, religion is still an incredibly powerful force in the world. Oh, God. Statistically, it is on a decline. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was trying to think, what are the gods of technology? And I was thinking, well, you know, you have your tech billionaires, but they're not ultra terrestrials. Those are people. And then I thought, those are assholes. What about? 
the algorithms. You know, we have it was so much of our our online experience. What we are aver- what is advertised to us, uh, what Twitter feeds get suggested to us, all of that is driven by these completely hidden algorithms that are determining who's on the rise, who's on the fall, who to promote, who not to. And yes, I know those were built by humans, but you can't honestly tell me they 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 know why the algorithms do everything they do, and they're tracking every single decision they make. It would it would make a lot of sense to me that if the ultra terrestrials are real, uh, that that's just another place to play. That is another because then that is effectively the god of of the modern world is technology. And this is the mind behind the technology that said this is pure tinfoil hat shit. So, I mean, but take it with a giant chunk of salt. The the. The implication that, you know, somebody would, you know, because people write algorithms, they're not just that created out of thin air. Yeah. And then they're being manipulated by the ultra terrestrials. Okay. I, I, I could see that. The, I guess the issue that I would have with, with that theory is then why is it, why, why are these companies like Twitter and and Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all of them. Why are they not freaking out when it's not going the way that they designed it to go? Maybe maybe they are privately. Maybe that's why Mark Zuckerberg looks like that. No, he's just an asshole. <laughs> um I don't I don't know. I mean the uh, fucking meta. Although really, if you're going full I, John Keel, you could even say that they're being made to not look into it or to not freak out. Because yeah. if we're dealing with things that can control our behavior, uh Again, we go back to if we assume a certain level of power, everything's on the table. And because everything's on the table, nothing's on the table. Right. If that makes sense. No, no, I, I know. It, I, I get what you're saying. I'm smelling that shit you're stepping in. So I have <laughs> I have I have more uh, spitballing science fiction nonsense. That sure. could be a possible explanation. Uh, we had this conversation months ago, and I'm pretty sure it was off air of like... <laughs> Of, of of we were talking about like well why why are so many of of these contacts clandestine like a, it, like disregarding Mister Keel's very valid interpretation of they're screwing with us for fun <laughs> like uh-huh. why are why do these efforts seem so clandestine why doesn't their government just come talk to our government and recently I was thinking about like hey you know how PETA makes everything worse because they don't know what they're talking about um. What if the what if the the, the non people the the whatevers the ultra terrestrials that come here are basically their world's equivalent of PETA, where their mm-hmm. government is like this is a preserve, it has not their civilization has not reached a point where we can communicate with them. I know it's really hard watching them kill each other because they are a. Adorable, but uh, <laughs> we just have to leave them alone and let them figure out what they're doing because it is immoral for creatures of our status and evolutionary stage to be interfering with creatures like them. And then there's just these bleeding heart, arrogant do-gooders who are like, I know how to save the humans. And uh, so they just keep showing up here in their fucking stolen pocket cars uh, and just being like, and just being like, you're going to destroy your world in a nuclear holocaust. It's like, I run a gas station. I can't, uh, I can't do that. And, or if it's just like, hey, hey, your friend got to a car accident. It's like, okay, I'm over here. Like we, we're being, we're being bombarded by uh, galactic SJWs. 
basically <laughs> basically and they just genuinely do not realize the harm that they're causing or like the lack of good that they're doing and that it's a, it's a combination of them and the shitty teenagers and just every few months their home planet has to be like stop bothering the humans unless you are a documentarian or a certified conservationist <laughs> all right on that on that note are we ready to go to section three so really we're just in a zoo we're just a zoo and these people are breaking in <laughs> and fucking with us and the the, the zookeepers are getting mad it is it is not a zoo it is it is, it is a preserve i think i got i it's told a preserve. you why do you think i said you guys are gonna be in dog kennels soon oh God great damn it they've recruited nick <laughs> space PETA got nick fine <laughs> move on all right over the next five chapters Keel explores the myriad forms and manifestations the ultra-terrestrials have taken, as he posits that the vast majority of entities in our skies go by disguised as prosaic or terrestrial objects, which only reveal their unnatural nature upon a close examination. And he begins with the airship flaps over North America. Like Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonia, Keel provides an exhaustive review of the best available airship sighting records, which began Thanksgiving week of 1896. Among the usual balls of energetic, multicolored lights, people also reported seeing odd egg-shaped craft, adorned with four arms topped in spinning rotors, cruising the skies above Oakland and San Francisco. Sightings spread from there, from San Jose to the Montezuma Mountains. Often these craft were described as great metal cigars adorned with propellers and wings, which, to the modern eye, are clearly an aeronautical impossibility, the craft often far too large for the rudimentary propellers to give it lift. Furthermore, these odd craft do seem to break down an awful lot, as evidenced by the massive number of encounters between witnesses and craft which have landed for emergency repairs. The occupants are almost always described as human-looking, with olive skin, Asian features, and high cheekbones, and when asked about the inner workings of their craft, often gave nonsensical explanations regarding the craft's function such as claiming that it was powered by steam or compressed air. In one notable case, a witness described only as ex-Senator Harris was awakened by a strange noise and looked out to see a massive airship descending over his property in Harrisburg, Arkansas. An elderly man with jet black eyes and wearing dark silks emerged from the craft. When Harris spoke with him, the man claimed to have an anti-gravity device invented by his late uncle, which was currently hidden in a safety deposit box in New York while he completed negotiations with potential buyers. The man then went on to say, quote, Weight is no object to me. I suspend all gravitation by placing a small wire around an object. You see, I have a four-ton improved Hotchkiss gun on board, besides about ten tons of ammunition. I was making preparations to go to Cuba and kill off the Spanish army if hostilities had not ceased. But now my plans are changed, and I may go to the aid of the Armenians. Conservationists. <laughs> As a side note, he also claimed his Hotchkiss gun, which was a sort of early machine gun akin to the Civil War Gatling gun, had a rate of fire of 64,000 rounds per minute. Now, a standard Hotchkiss gun had a typical rate of fire of 450 to 500 rounds per minute, and the M123 minigun, famously used in Vietnam, only had a fire rate of 6,000 rounds per minute. In fact, it wouldn't be until the modern day, with the release of the prototype Metal Storm machine gun, that any handheld weapon would exceed the reported capabilities of this man's gun. So what you're saying is, 
he's a liar. I mean, I think he'll believe it. Yes. I mean, yeah, that's the whole point of the book. <laughs> the whole point of this book is everything any alien has ever said is bullshit. <laughs> if you land in somebody's field because your ship is breaking down, don't start talking about the horrible firearm you have on board. The fucking war crime. Can, can you imagine, though, like <laughs> the showing up at some farmer's house, like in your like in your G, in your car in the middle of the night and just going up and say, hey, you want to see my gun? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I know a lot of people that would probably do just that. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> I would begin boarding every piece of furniture I had. <laughs> By analyzing 126 reports of airship sightings over 14 different states in 1897, Keel believes one can see a clear plan in action, one which uses carefully staged encounters to conceal the true nature of the craft. The hyper-advanced technology's tendency to break down was a ruse, meant to allow certain individuals to get a close look at the craft and leave with the implausible conclusion that they were man-made. The encounter with the ex-senator also introduced the idea of a lone, crazed inventor as the source of the mystery, a story which the press were all too happy to run with. But, if the sightings were truly due to one lone ship, then why were sightings reported in Michigan, Texas, Iowa, and Missouri all on the same night? Keel further points out that the phenomenon made several attempts to not only craft this narrative, but enforce it. Just prior to the California sightings, a mysterious man visited San Francisco attorney George D. Collins to obtain a patent for his new airship, which ran on compressed air. When the sightings began shortly after, Collins was all too happy to report that the craft was a new fantabulous invention, one which would come to the market soon. Of course, this never happened, as evidenced by the fact that I am unable to fly my personal airship to the Costco. <laughs> Keel dubbed this the press agent game, and argues that it is a core tactic of the ultra-terrestrials. And once the inventor narrative had taken hold, the phenomenon only needed to perform minor maintenance in order to upkeep the illusion, including more stage sightings or the appearance of certain cards, documents, and trash, which were meant to look as if they'd been dropped from one of the airships and often contained elements which supported the human inventor's story. This game was even repeated in the 1909 airship flap, during which a new secret inventor came forward to claim credit for the airship seen across the country. Only this time, we had a name. Wallace E. Tillergast, VP of the SureSeal Manufacturing Company, who proclaimed to the press that he had invented a new type of airplane capable of carrying three passengers a distance of 300 miles a feat unheard of at the time. Where's the plane, Wallace? <laughs> Show me the plane, Wallace. He claimed it had an improbable 72-foot wingspan, yet only ran off a 120-horsepower motor. A plane this size would not be produced until the B-52 bomber 30 years later. Predictably, the invention never saw the light of day, yet that did not stop people across the country from blindly attributing further sightings to Tillergast. As Keel argues... He believes Tillergast was a pawn. Likely, he had been approached by another mysterious inventor, offering to cut him in on the invention of a century if he takes point as the face of the endeavor, leaving him with a whole crate of eggs on his face when the promised marvel never made it to production. However, as our collective knowledge of aeronautics improved, the clumsy airships began to look increasingly improbable. And so, Keel argues, the phenomenon involved a new skin. In Chapter 7, he discusses the sightings of mystery airplanes and helicopters seen across Scandinavia in the mid-to-late 1930s and 1960s. 
Often described as typical planes or outlandish delta-winged craft, they lacked any markings, often glowed, and generated no or little sound while flying. Strangely, the cockpit of these craft were usually brightly lit, revealing the helmeted pilot behind the wheel, despite the fact that such lights would blind the pilot, especially when flying at night. Perhaps this is another deception, a way to reinforce the idea that these craft have a man-made origin. And while it would be easy to say that witnesses simply saw foreign planes, which did not wish to broadcast their origin due to nefarious human activities, we must also remember that during the 1934 flap over Scandinavia, there were no private planes in operation in any of the impacted countries. In fact, there were no planes in existence which could mimic the daring maneuvers seen of these mystery planes. And much like modern UFOs' interests in our nuclear bases, these sightings seem to focus around locations of strategic importance, much to the concern of the Swedish and Finnish governments. Like before, the phenomenon took steps to sell the lie, as radio operators across Scandinavia began picking up strange radio transmissions from the planes, which, while revealing little, suggested a human origin to the mysterious craft. From there, Kiel takes a look at another possible disguise of the ultra-terrestrials, meteors. While, of course, meteors are real, Kiel argues that they often provide a convenient cover for the activities of the non-people. As examples, he forwards incidents such as the glowing spheres of floating light seen after a presumed meteor crashed into the town of Tashkent in the Soviet Union in April of 1966, a town which so happens to be on the exact opposite side of the world from Washington State, where, in a town sharing a longitude with Tashkent, a bright flash of light was said to light the sky at the exact moment as the Soviet disaster. In another compelling example, he details the passage of a strange meteor over the U.S. in April of 1962. Described as a reddish ball of flames, the Air Force tracked the object as it moved down through Canada and then across the U.S. into Nevada, where, some claim, a saucer-shaped object was seen landing just outside a power station near where the meteor was supposed to have crashed. Shortly after, the power in the nearby town of Eureka went out for several hours, another common occurrence during UFO events. What is interesting here to note, though, is that the ball traveled over a dozen states before supposedly crashing, moving at a comparatively sluggish speed of 1,425 miles per hour. By comparison, the slowest meteor ever recorded flew at a blistering 27,000 miles per hour. Now taking a step back, Kiel looks at all these phenomenon under the assumption that they have a shared source, and as such tries to map their movements. And what he found was that these objects, regardless of form, seem to move in a set pattern year by year, and have done so likely for centuries. The objects swoop down through the Midwest, then around towards the western states, before looping back up towards Wyoming and onward to where the loop closes somewhere in northern Canada. Other such circular paths have also been mapped, not only in North America but across the world. Rather than revealing the location of secret saucer bases, Kiel believes these routes indicate the presence of what he calls window areas, being thin spots where the entities seem to enter our world. Such window areas are usually circular and encompass an average 200-mile radius inside which the craft are spotted. In other words, it is quite possible that the craft only enter our reality here, or they are always here and only become visible when passing through these windows. Furthermore, upon reviewing electromagnetic mappings of the United States, 
He found that most window areas centered around locations where there are strong wells of electromagnetic energy in the Earth. Kill went on to map as many as he could, finding that each U.S. state had anywhere from two to ten distinct window areas. Kiel then turns his attention to the mystery of the physical artifacts left behind by the UFOs. Falling blocks of ice, stone pillars bearing mysterious glyphs, and all sorts of shiny metallic trash have either fallen out of or been discarded by passing craft. While we would hope this would be our smoking gun, the truth is scientific analysis of these objects seldom reveals any reason to suspect a non-terrestrial origin. As Kiel notes, quote, Such evidence had to be non-terrestrial. But this was a vicious cycle. If a piece of metal fell from a UFO and proved to be ordinary aluminum, it was discarded. If it proved to be made of a puzzling, unidentifiable alloy, it still proved nothing unless the source could also be proven. To Keel, these artifacts are just a part of the game. To believers, the physical artifacts prove beyond a shadow of a doubt the reality of a superior alien intelligence. And to skeptics, the object's terrestrial nature allows them to safely disregard them and the entire topic in its totality. As Kiel argues, this was the express intention of the ultra-terrestrials. It is the same motivation that sees supposedly superior supercraft landing for repairs in a farmer's field, as the saucers seem to break down about as often as an old Ford Fiesta. And why the interactions with the craft occupants are often confusing or nonsensical, such as in Joe Simonton's encounter with pancake-loving space people, detailed in our episode on Passport to Magonia. As Kiel notes, quote, Thoroughly investigated, objectively reported cases are very rare. Even so, when you collect together all the available data, as I have tried to do, and view it quantitatively, you naturally expect that this mass of information will reveal some positive factors. Instead, an astounding paradox is presented. The scope of the phenomenon and the overwhelming quantity of reports negates its validity. In other words, the confusing, sometimes outright absurd behaviors and appearances of these objects and their occupants create a smokescreen of conflicting messages, bizarre accounts, and contradictions which make it near impossible to glean any sort of concrete facts about these entities or their plans, prompting Keel to remark, quote, We, the ufologists, have really only paid attention to the eccentricities, the objects of unusual configurations. They undoubtedly constitute a minority, and probably a deceptive minority, of all the paraphysical objects flitting about in our atmosphere. In other words, flying saucers are not at all what we hoped they were. They are part of something else. Which brings us to our third discussion question. So, Kiel himself noted that, quote, The UFO phenomenon is frequently reflective. That is, the observed manifestations seem to be deliberately tailored and adjusted to the individual beliefs and mental attitudes of witnesses. Both the objects and their occupants appear to be able to adopt a multitude of forms, and the contactees are usually given information that conforms to their own beliefs. With this in mind, couldn't the same thing be happening to Keel with the phenomenon working to reinforce his ultra-terrestrial theory as a form of reflective deception? I think that's just what happened. <laughs> I, yeah, okay. I, I don't think that's necessarily a possibility. I think that's literally just what happened. <laughs> I, <laughs> there's a reason we still use inkblot tests. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's just like, where's your, where's your mind go first, pal? Murder? Death? Okay. Um, that's not the inkblot's fault. That's you. <laughs> um, 
So, so yeah, I, I think, I, I, I think that's entirely possible. I think it's I th- more than possible. I think it's likely. And I, 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 I'm very curious as to whether or not that ever occurred to him. And if it did occur to him, if there would have been anything he could even do about it. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that too. I don't think there is because what are you going to do? Get rid of your belief? Yeah, that's very difficult for people to do. And also, then it's just going to get replaced by something else. How do you know getting rid of that belief will actually let you get to the real belief? Mm-hmm. I, no, I think you're right. I don't I don't think there's anything necessarily that you can do except to be aware that that might be happening, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, it, it really... Really, what it is, is it's just giving yourself an exit door. It's like, I'm going to believe this, but I can always leave this establishment. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's literally just what I do in in my personal practice of, you know, I, I work I work with Grecian entities and a few Christian entities and one Irish entity. And I occasionally come across things in their original literature that contradict the way that I view them and work with them. And it's like, that's OK, because this is the form they came to me in. This is the form that I am responding to. And again, stimulus response, input, output. I'm not offending the phenomenon. I am taking the raw materials that the phenomenon has provided for me, and I am forging whatever the fuck I want out of it. Because two can play at that game, non-people. I don't know if I've ever said this on the show. I probably have. But it's one of my favorite counters to anybody who tries to say that God or gods are only one way and they're only ever that way. And it's, I refuse to accept that a God or gods would not evolve with their people. And that kind of plays into the idea of the phenomenon in a way, if the phenomenon is reacting to us and I uh, choose to use uh bridget as my primary deity um but maybe the the bridget that i worship isn't exactly the same as the bridget that were that that the, the ancient celts worshiped and that's fine i don't think she cares i don't think any god would care you know whatever um but i think like in answer to your question nick uh i agree with jay here I think that's exactly what happened because that's exactly what would happen. You know, if Keel is right that the phenomenon reacts to us or, you know, it shapes itself to to our to our own beliefs, then I think that's exactly what happened to Keel and he's just trying to explain it through his own beliefs. That, that that's interesting. Well, and I'm reminded of uh God, I I can't word for word pull the quote from my brain, but uh, he said something once to the effect of what I try. He said something to the effect of what he tried to get at through five books he wrote was that we are the source of the phenomenon. And and one thing that I was thinking about in relation to that, what as you guys were talking about that, um, is what if ultra terrestrials or whatever we want to call them is the other world in that that that's what we become when we die. What if that what the ultra terrestrials are is us. It's just those of us who are on that other side. Uh, and once you're no longer haunting this world, you're no longer a ghost. Maybe that's just what you become an entity of pure consciousness. 
And in a way, we're still connected to the universal unconsciousness mm -hmm. because we're human. And what if the, the shape changing, all of that, the reflective nature is because when you're in that incorporeal energy body, you are more susceptible to the t ebbs and tides of the universal unconsciousness. As new ideas enter the pop culture, it literally changes your nature. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, again, I'm, this is pure science fiction. This is me just spitballing possibilities. I mean, that statement you just made is again, pigeon drugstore Buddhism alert. <laughs> not That is from my basic understanding that is what Mahayana Buddhism essentially posits as the evolution of a singular entity as they transcend towards enlightenment is you begin as an incredibly low form of being. There are actually in, in Buddhist structure, there are actually beings below humanity. Uh, and you, as you essentially move through these stages of evolving, of getting stuck as a, as a demon in like hungry ghost hell and shit like that, you evolve through being beetles and fish and animals to humanity and then you begin evolving past that of an enlightened human being um uh the there and then there are these are western words applied to the different levels of like you essentially move into what are called meditation heavens and those are those are metaphysical realities in which you are free of physical urges from from maya which this around us is is maya is the illusionary world that keel was talking about earlier and you and there are actually multiple levels even within those meditation heavens they're essentially according to mahayana buddhism it's possible to be less enlightened than somebody else oh god oh god the universe is an mlm yes it is ah, yes it is i don't like that and you only escape when you realize that there is no you on Atman, not Atman, no self, not true self. Just like a real MLM. Yep. <laughs> Where do you think they got the ideas from? You only succeed when you lose your personality. <laughs> Market, you know that like MLMs, mark, you know, multi-level marketing schemes are a lot of them actually preach useful mindfulness. Like a lot of them do. They're just also a cult. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Like that. That's the thing. Like they get these ideas for a reason. Like, and you said something earlier that 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 struck me, and I wanna I wanted to talk about it real quick. You said you know what like what if like all this is a gateway to that other world or whatever. And Keel brings this up late in the book. He talks about how Christianity um, has kind of bastardized what hell or was supposed to be like the actual translation was otherworld okay um i'm gonna go to where of course of course i'm gonna go to where where i'm gonna go and that's gonna be into druidry since that's what i'm studying right now and druidry believes in the other world it's that's what it's called it's called the other world or the spirit world and that is where we go when we tap into uh that 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 next level consciousness that's what it's called the other world so yeah, uh, I think, yeah, no, I, I don't know. I just, what you said, it struck me and I wanted to talk about that because it's one more thing that's like across all of these nations. And then uh, again, with, with Buddhism, you can look at it with Egyptian mythology. They have the same kind of thing, like all of it. It's all there. And, it's, and most of it is just talking about how to achieve that. And what they're really talking about is how to achieve that internally for yourself. 
Interesting. Well, and so to get back to the original question, uh, I think basically what we just described there is the mechanism by which the reflective deception could operate. Mm -hmm. Yes. In the sense of it's not so much they're directly lying. They're giving you exactly what you want because they are unable to not because they are subject to your consciousness in a way. Yeah. Uh, Kind of an inversion of the relationship. They're not messing with us. We're messing with ourselves by using them. Yeah. Uh, But that said, who knows? I I think it's certainly possible, especially with the, uh, as we read in the Mothman prophecies, the way the phenomenon fucked with him, uh, the mysterious phone calls, getting stalked, things like that. It it all, to me, smacks of uh, an operation to instill as much paranoia as possible in one human being. And that's interesting when you think about the fact that Keel wrote military propaganda. Yeah. Uh, not only that, he has, let's just call it a complicated relationship with the truth. And, and yeah, it also and, and that that just also makes me think of some of the stuff we talked about during uh, our discussion, of the haunting of Alma Fielding, of the idea of are poltergeists just externalized mental illness that occasionally dons the mask of dead people in order to lend themselves legitimacy? And it's like, is everything that happened to Keel is that just his paranoia and his unprocessed grief? And I don't know a bunch of other things that are, that were trapped inside of him, just kind of clawing their way out of her, out of his skull and being like, I got bored of torturing you from the inside. Let's see how it works. If I do it from the outside or torturing you from the inside didn't work. So how about I torture you from the outside? Absolutely. Like, well, and it's interesting because the one argument I could say against, uh, Keel falling for the same trick would be that then why did the ultra terrestrials continue to when talking to him through his network of silent contactees refer to themselves as aliens refer to themselves as something else than ultra terrestrials why weren't they feeding that belief but that said if you think about how paranoid keel was if they had he wouldn't have believed it by saying they're aliens they actually are enforcing his own beliefs yep there are some people who are so stubborn and so resistant that the only psychology that works on them is reverse psychology. Yeah. And I will say, I did get the overwhelming impression reading uh, anything about John Keel is that he is a very stubborn man. Oh, yeah. And that shows in, in in just the way that he talks about things, like the clip that we played during the um, during the Visitors from Lanilos episode. Like That's one of the things that really comes off, even in that clip, is like he had made up his mind already. Yeah. Like, you know, that and- was it. There's just that low level of, I don't want to say disdain, but that's as close as I can get for all of humanity. Not even humanity, for everything that thinks. He, he believes very much in the motto that House, the character in t- the TV show House, believes. Everybody lies. Yeah, well, in, including himself. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. He's I, not, he's, he's, he doesn't separate himself from that. Which is it's funny because reading this, I, I actually believed more of this, or I was more willing to just outright buy more of this book than most other Keel because there's very little in here about his own story. It's right. it's research and other people's stories he collected, and that I believe he's probably telling us what he actually found. Um, but anytime he's talking about his own life, I feel like he is one of those people who has a tendency to mythologize his own life. He makes it way bigger than it was or he changes around the events to make it make more narrative sense sure he's a he's a writer and a journalist first yeah 
Yeah. And a human second. Yep. No, you're absolute, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, Keel. All right. We ready to move to part four? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Over the next few chapters, Keel turns his attention to the nature of the ultraterrestrials themselves, first noting the odd extratemporal nature of the beings. Well, for sake of time, I'm only going to lightly touch on the topic here. Keel argues that their penchant for accurate prophecy and their apparent all-knowledge of human events indicates that these beings may exist outside the flow of our normal space-time. Such entities would hence be able to conduct a massive operation encompassing several thousand of our years, ensuring that a budding humanity would never be able to put a complete picture together. From there, he turns to an analysis of the messages received from the craft occupants. In the aptly titled chapter, You're Endangering the Balance of the Universe! As Keel notes, the body of UFO canon is filled with dire warnings about humanity's effect on the world around them. These usually focus on atomic threats, such as with the three U.S. airmen who were dispatched to Argentina to guard a downed Air Force jet. One night, they observed a disc-shaped craft descend over them and heard a disembodied voice say, quote, We intend to help you, for the misuse of atomic energy threatens to destroy you. Yeah, see, this is where my uh, Peter Ru- Space Peter Ruins Everything theory started coming together. Yeah, I, 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 I could see that. Uh, so this warning has been repeated ad nauseum by UFO contactees, and in more recent years, has shifted from atomic concerns to concerns over our impact on the environment, as if giving voice to whatever anxiety is dominating the population at the time. Though, it is worth noting that sometimes these warnings do take a more esoteric bent as demonstrated by actor Stuart Whitman's sighting of a craft outside the window of his New York hotel during the Great Blackout of November 1965. As he said, quote, They said they were fearful of Earth because Earthlings were messing around with unknown quantities and might disrupt the balance of the universe or their planet. The blackout was just a little demonstration of their power, and they could do a lot more with almost no effort. They said they could stop our whole planet from functioning. As part of these contacts, The contactees were also often told that the visitors come from Venus or Mars, places which our modern science assures us are lifeless, and hence, many discounted these contactees as liars. However, as Keel posits, it is the phenomenon that is the liar. And if we only look a bit further back into our history, Keel believes we could see evidence of other manipulations. Once, contactees reported fantastic encounters with demons and angels, who spoke of a primordial battle between good and evil. In modern UFO sightings, many contactees report this exact same thing, only reframed as a battle for humanity between good guy aliens and bad guy aliens. As such, Keel came to believe that the phenomenon likely sat at the root of all major religions, and are akin to our cultural memory of early experiences with the lies of the phenomenon. As an example, Keel forwards the Forgotten Book of Eden, an apocryphal Christian text which explains that Satan and his hosts were fallen angels who populated Earth before the advent of humanity. They detested their new neighbors and tried to kill us with fire, lights, and water. Within the text, there are also several references to these fallen angels appearing as globular balls of light in the sky. And Satan, or rather the idea of a nefarious trickster hell-bent on tormenting humanity, is not a concept unique to Christianity either. Native American tribes knew of dark trickster spirits, Islam has Iblis, and other religions the world over contain references to similar dark entities. And even when looking at secular history, Gill argues, we can see signs of interference by some outside source. 
Supposedly, Thomas Jefferson received the design for the reverse side of the Great Seal of the U.S. from a dark-hooded gentleman. Ominous. The likes of Napoleon, Julius Caesar, and Alexander the Great were all said to have received visits from mysterious men who vanished as inexplicably as they arrived, often leaving the contactee rattled. These visitations from ancient men in black have also long been noticed in occult circles, where, through the occult frame of reference, they are seen as agents of dark magic or spirits of some kind. Keel furthers this with the bold claim that ultra-terrestrials were also behind the rise of spiritualism in the mid-1800s. Keel argues that the mediums who channel spirits of the dead are, in fact, unwitting voice boxes through which the ultra-terrestrials pass along messages to continue their games. This explains how some trance mediums are, when under the control of their spirit guide, able to speak in languages the medium themselves doesn't know. The ultra-terrestrial, by nature of existing above and beyond our reality, has access to the collected body of all human information and languages. Furthermore, he draws direct lines between the possessions experienced by trance mediums and the episodes of lost time experienced by UFO contactees, and that some of the dead seem to have repeated the same dire warnings shared by the euphonauts. Likewise, he argues that automatic writing and many methods of channeling psychic information are nothing more than methods to invite the ultra-terrestrials over to play. The book OISP, which I think is how it's pronounced, was written entirely via automatic writing by New York dentist Dr. John Newbrow. It contained a complete history of the human race, including information about our solar system and the Van Allen radiation belt, much of which wouldn't be officially discovered for decades. In addition, the text contains an odd language said to be the native language of the euphonauts, which, upon analysis, was revealed to be a dizzying mixture of Latin, Gaelic, Algonquin Indian, and other ancient tongues. A language like this has also been heard coming from UFO contactees, and when analyzed by trained linguists, does seem to have a consistent structure and grammar. For Newbrow to have invented the language would have taken years, and an expertise in linguistics which he simply did not have. Keel then turns his attention to religious miracles as yet another facet of the game. He explores in depth the now famous miracle at Fatima, where three young Portuguese children encountered a spectral manifestation of the Virgin Mary. Mary claimed that a miracle would be coming the following October, and it was the duty of these children to spread the word. Over the next several months, she appeared several more times to the children, and with each appearance, more and more came to gather in the field outside the town of Cabiso in hopes of catching sight of the apparition. On the prophesied day, over 70,000 people turned up and witnessed a massive silver disc descend through the clouds, raining thin gossamer threads they called angel hair. As one witness, a distinguished scientist named Professor Almeida Garrett describes it, quote, It was raining hard. Suddenly the sun shone through the dense cloud which covered it. Everybody looked in its direction. It looked like a disc of a very definite contour. It was not dazzling. I don't think it could be compared to a dull silver disc, as someone said later at Fatima. It rather possessed a clear, changing brightness, which one could compare to a pearl. The craft was then said to descend rapidly, turning a burning red and emitting a wave of heat over the crowd, which, reportedly, caused a large number of miraculous healings to occur among the injured and ill. This event was then mythologized over the years. The disc became a moving sun, and the angel hair became rose petals to represent the Virgin Mary, which may have been the point all along, 
as the event provided those people a new frame of reference through which to interpret any aerial phenomenon they may see from then on. The miraculous healings in that light could be seen as nothing more than extra incentive to buy the illusion. And the same strategy seems to have been in play in Keel's time. Quote, Now astrologers and hippies are expecting the age of Aquarius, a new age when the old values and concepts will be tossed aside as mankind somehow merges with the cosmic consciousness, and our awareness of the supercosmos leads us further along some predestined path. All of which, Keel argues, is nothing more than set dressing meant to foster particular beliefs. To understand the true methods and motivations of the ultraterrestrials, we must learn to discard all preconceived ideas and look at the totality of the available evidence. Which brings us to our fourth discussion question. Is it possible to do as Keel suggests? Can we truly discard all previous frames of reference, or is bias inherent and unavoidable? Furthermore, how would you even go about resisting drawing any conclusions when you are faced with a manifestation of the phenomenon? Um, oh, I think, well, I think bias is unavoidable. Unconscious bias is a thing for a reason. You know, so I, I, I don't think, I mean, no matter how much you, can, you try to coach it out of yourself, yeah, it's, you're, you're never going to be able to, to, to fully take away your, your, your inherent, you know, bias beliefs. Your human nature? Your nature, yeah, exactly. Um, so I think it's hard to resist drawing any, of the, uh, drawing any conclusions, especially because that's just kind of what we want to do as, 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 as people. We, wanna, we want answers. We don't want to just let it be. We don't want it to, we, we don't want to end with a question that's not satisfying. Um, so I, I, I don't, I, I, I don't think it, I don't think it's possible for us to separate ourselves from our, uh, our upbringing, our, 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 our nature, all of that. I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's truly possible. I think what we can do is continue to better ourselves and work to temper and, and and control those biases uh so that we can make more logical i don't even want to say logical because that's not necessarily true uh i i guess just make more coherent decisions you know be able to you know temper them down and understand that what you are doing, what you, this decision, this thought that you're having is because of a bias or an unconscious bias. You know, I, I think that's going to be, that's going to play a huge part in, 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 in anything that you do. Well, what's interesting there is also, I mean, we're right now you were just talking about bias based off of upbringing, political beliefs, religious beliefs, that's all going to factor in. But I even, if we're talking about the ultra terrestrials, you know, especially Keel's ultra terrestrials, if they have that much control over our reality, uh, there we have to go much deeper regarding which assumptions we we have to be suspect of. For example, every day of my life, the sun has risen in the morning. What if one day it doesn't? What if that's a game? What what if the sun isn't real? And that's just which I know is it a fucking insane thing to say. But that's that's kind of the rabbit hole that I feel like Keel is falling down. Well, and here's the thing, and you brought up a good point that I hadn't thought of before. Uh, you know, the biases even uh, that we're looking at. If I have a bias, unconscious or not, because of my religious upbringing, let's break that down a little bit. 
where did some of these come from? How do we know that it wasn't the ultra terrestrials that planted it there? Right. You know, um, in, you know, it just Christianity alone was cited repeatedly throughout this book with examples that compared what prophets saw to UFO sightings. So now we've, ba- you know, there are millions of people that have based their life off of this foundation that ultimately could have been a game from altered terrestrials to try and just see what would happen. I mean, especially with Christianity. Fuck, thinking about that. Or or, or maybe Jock Valet's right, and the purpose wasn't just to see what happens, but it's a control mechanism. Yeah, It was absolutely. done intentionally to shape us. I think that there's a, there, I think that that there's a chance, there's a good chance of that, especially because, and we've harped on this a lot, and I'm going to harp on it again, and I don't care. How many times that there, how many times have we seen from across the planet, the same kind of foundation laid at, you know, uh, uh, different faiths, religions, and lifestyles. Yeah. I mean, well, and even if you go back to ancient religions, I mean, there are Egyptian hieroglyphics, which look a lot like certain Sumerian figures. There are certain Sumerian figures, which look a lot like some of the ones found in Mayan temples. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there are certain images which seem to predate that (laughs) seem to predate our oldest known cultures. Yeah. There was some sort of root that that image came from, you know? Yeah. And, and maybe even that initial, I don't know, primordial religion from which all these different uh, faiths and cultures spawned, maybe even that at the very root was the ultra-terrestrials play game. I mean, and, and this could go back to the idea that we were a trial run for some other species, so naturally they are... You know, they come in, they plant the seed in one part of the country, they plant it in an, or in the one part of the world, they plant it in another part of the world. They want to see what happens. Um, and all of everything that's happened since, you know, could have just been a whoops or it could have been a success. Maybe this was, this was their, their, their plan all along. I, I, I don't know, but I, I definitely see that a little bit, a little bit more right now too about like the idea that's like everything literally everything is is suspect if you want to break it down to the to how keel is looking at it because i mean thinking about the things that i've studied in druidry like they talk about you know all these stories whether or not they're true or not but then the encounters with the fae and it's like okay well were those altered terrestrials that we then just based centuries of life off of this this interaction you know like how do we know that the morgan when she talked to uh, all the all those kings pre-war that that wasn't her egging them on because that's what we needed you know that's and that was really just an ultra terrestrial quite frankly of all the ancient uh deities the morgan is the one who i think acts most like a john keel ultra terrestrial well yeah because uh, well, yeah the morgan is a fairy like <laughs> she, she yeah she she that that's not that she did not start out as a goddess that was an unhinged unsealy fay that the dagda was like hey so i've been hooking up with this chick down by the river and uh she's moving in and she's the goddess of war now and the rest of them were like <laughs> why do you keep doing this three is a powerful number oh okay she's crazy yeah but three is a powerful number 
She stabbed Danu. And? God damn it. Okay. We, we're over Danu. You know what? You, you have to go in the box for a while. <laughs> People have made worse decisions in the name of their penis. <sighs> True. <laughs> um, so... So, uh, continuing to build off of the the theoretical perspective that I have adopted for this particular moment in time, to be free of bias would be to render the phenomenon dormant. So, in order to interact with and study the phenomenon at all, you have to accept that there is bias. Because, again, it's stimulus response. If you have no bias, you are providing it no stimulus, no input, no output, which could potentially explain why hardcore skeptics frequently do not have these experiences. That's actually a good thought right there. Mm -hmm. And that that way you could take the reflective nature of the ultra-terrestrials and apply it, I mean, as Keel would, to everything. A haunted house, uh, you know, a psychic phenomenon even. Granted, yeah. Psychic phenomenon is the one I'm iffy on because that seems to originate from the person, but that's how we don't actually know. It's yeah, it, and it's 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 also entirely possible that again, input output output has to originate from some sort of point. There needs to be speakers attached to the computer, or you're not going to hear the music. Yeah, it's entirely possible that psychics are speakers. Hmm. Um. That's that that's that that is interesting because I mean thinking I like that you're doing input output too, just because I'm thinking about that while looking at our the mixer that, that we use. It's like okay, I talk into this microphone, it delivers the you know, the information through this cable into our mixer, which then puts it out of the output and into my computer. Much like the phenomenon itself, I try to put things in terms other people will understand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- so, are you uh, sure you're not an ultra terrestrial? No. You know, dude, I don't like any aspect of this planet I currently live on. <laughs> it's very loud and bright, and the textures that are That sounds like a yes. Get the burning pyre. <laughs> God damn it, man. You know that's not going to do anything. You are not going to burn my spouse. What about lightly toast? No. Like a marshmallow. <laughs> N- no. <laughs> I, I, I cannot I cannot in good conscience allow this. Can I can I pull the hair dryer a little too close to their skin? I'm okay cons- with that. Do you consent? Yes, I consent to I'm gonna give you the weirdest windburn of your life. <laughs> um This is such a weird conversation. Um, but I think I think my darling spouse is correct that I don't I don't think it's possible to be free of bias just because it's not possible to be free of bias. Even a baby has bias because when they're when you're a newborn, you remember shit from the womb, and shit from the womb is going to give you a bias. So maybe if we somehow remove a zygote from a human being's uterus and attempt to uh, have it interact with the phenomenon, but then how the fuck are we supposed to talk to a zygote? It doesn't have a brain yet. I right. It, or you can almost like. Take someone with complete and total amnesia and have them do it. Except that's not, except no. And also amnesia doesn't really work like that. Yeah, no, it doesn't. We've, we've, done, we've done studies. Um, people with what we would call total amnesia, if you put them in front of a food they hate and a food they like, they will still, the vast majority of the time, instinctively reach for the food they like 
And if you ask them, why didn't you go for the eggplant puree over the whatever over over the why didn't you go for the eggplant puree over the spinach pie? They'll say, I hate eggplant puree. And you're like, how do you know that? They're like, I have no fucking idea. But as soon as you put that in front of me, I knew I didn't want it. Like it's so it's not. Yeah, I don't I don't really think it's possible to be free of bias and additionally like this is i'm so glad that these are the two questions we had one right after the other because going back to heels bias is as a theologian i can see biases he has that he is very clearly unaware of of some of the some of the other cultures that he's bringing up of like well they have this devil myth of it's like no john that's not what that is that's not the purpose of that entity at all like it looks like that either because you got a poor translation, it was explained to you badly, or your brain took that ink blot and made it into something using your frame of reference that it was not. Of like, he didn't specifically bring this up in the book that I can remember, but a lot of people refer to Set from the Egyptian pantheon as the god of evil and their equivalent of the devil. No. No, Set. there's a reason that Set was still invited to parties with the other gods. It's because he was an entity of chaos and change. And in some ways, he was more vital to the existence of them and the prosperity of their people than any of the rest of them. The reason he assassinated Osiris was was because he was like, you've been king too long. Mm. I can't actually think of a pantheon that has a devil-like figure that wasn't manipulated to to be like that i mean you look at you know it's funny because we've talked about this i mean i I know i read that section there but that was because it's what keel wrote um but like think like uh uh, some slavic mythology we have volos Mm -hmm. uh who was a respected god until christianity turned him into the devil yeah uh some it could be that what we're seeing is one particular game winning out over the others those yeah. it, the images created from one religion have become influential enough that they are now being superimposed over other faiths. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's literally. I mean, that is that's what that that's what happens. Yeah. The the question yeah. is is that due yeah. to uh, human processes or due to manipulations from some outside force? The, the closest to a devil figure that I can think of of like non Christianity religions is. Uh, Cronus in in the in the Greek pantheon of like the the Titan that had yeah. to be killed and thrown into Tartarus, but even that but, uh, is not well because I, the Titans are the Titans were beyond yeah us and everything. Well, I mean, I know that yeah. back in uh, season of the witch, uh, a Satan allegory was listed as pa- as Papa Legba. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, yeah. but here's the thing: is even that people people's relationships with that entity are not the same as a Christian person's relationship with Lucifer, which yeah. isn't which. And what blows my mind is that's not, that was, that's, that's not even who he is. Yeah. No, it's not. And it's the same thing with Hasatan in Judaism. Hasatan is, is the adversary who is it, 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 pigeon, pigeon drugstore. This is not my field theology. Hasatan to me seems more analogous to set than to Lucifer of of it's just like why of it's just like why are you doing this it's like because somebody has to yeah oh it's similar to uh hades someone has to see over the underworld yeah he didn't particularly enjoy that job he didn't even want it 
they drew, yeah, they drew lots in, in some versions of the myth. It's heavily implied that Poseidon and Zeus rigged that game because they're assholes. And like like Hades and uh, and Menon and MacLear in in Irish culture, their purpose was to guide souls. Not, yeah, uh, nothing else. The 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 Morrigan is closer to the devil than yes. him. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, the Morrigan actually I think is a great stand-in for the devil. I I do think. Certain, I mean, I you'd you'd have to get down to the not even just the specific tribe, but specific communities. But certain Native American spirits I've read about do seem devilish. But it's more in line with tricksters teaching lessons than than an entity of malice. Because that was that's what it is. Like most, from my understanding, at least most of the time, those entities that are seen as you know evil. It's mostly just tricksters. You know, yeah. Like Coco Paley is a trickster. Well, and so to add to this, uh, kind of the second part of the question there, what I was thinking of specifically, though, is that even if you do try to be like Keel and, and, and you try to resist all biases and all frames of reference, um, what do you do when a ship lands in front of you and a long-haired dude steps out and says, Hi, I'm from Venus. Are you going to argue with him? That's the thing. How could you resist a, uh, at least coming to some sort of interpretation in that moment? Uh, are you just going to look at this guy in the eye and say, no, you're not, you liar. And then you mug him. No, I, 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 I'd say, I'd probably say what I would, uh, talk to a person who was having, um, an active, mild, psychotic episode. Yeah, sure. Uh, what do you need? No, no, I don't want to, I don't necessarily, we've established you're from Venus. What's the issue? Like, I can't do anything about you being from Venus. <laughs> I can do something about you need water because you're severely dehydrated. And after we get you rehydrated, we'll maybe revisit that Venus thing and see if your assertions have changed. He wants bland wheat cakes. With I'd... how often UFOs <laughs> land for water and or food, I really think they need to start having a kitchen on board. Uh, Again, space pita ruins everything. They don't pack enough supplies, <laughs> and then they come. They're here through. for our wheat. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> All right, so I think we've beaten that one to death. Are we ready for the final part? Let's go! Woo! As Keel's investigation into the phenomenon ramped up, it noticed him in turn. Much of the information in this section was also included in the Mothman prophecies, and as such, we discussed it on that episode. But in short, Keel was hounded by strange phone calls, mysterious stalkers, and was followed by many black Cadillacs with tinted windows. But more importantly, his associates also began to suffer for his interest. His friend's apartment in New York was suddenly beset by poltergeist phenomenon, and another friend lost two hours of time while drying her hair in her own apartment, reminding me of the hitchhiker phenomenon that we've discussed related to locations like Skinwalker Ranch. Kiel himself also experienced several incidents of sleep paralysis, during which he would see dark entities looming above him. Now, while that last one could easily be chalked up to just sleep paralysis, it does reveal something about Kiel. The ultraterrestrial theory is comprehensive in that it allows the believer to attribute nearly any event to the games of the non-people. Is it sleep paralysis or an ultraterrestrial? Is that really a man in black, or just a guy who has a black suit and happens to be walking the same way you are? In this manner, the ultra-terrestrial theory promotes a sort of paranoia-soaked magical thinking, in which every small incident could be indicative of a greater game. 
though we can't begrudge him his paranoia, as during his investigation of the Mothman sightings in the Point Pleasant area, the ultra-terrestrials began reaching out to him through the network of silent contactees he had cultivated. In this way, they passed along a number of prophecies and did accurately predict several plane crashes, blackouts, and an attempt on the Pope's life in Turkey. Though their greatest and most dire prophecy, being a catastrophe that would plunge the country into darkness, thankfully did not manifest. Instead, on the prophesized day, the Silver Bridge collapsed in Point Pleasant while Keel was in New York, carrying with it several Mothman witnesses to a watery grave. As Keel writes, quote, This is the tiger behind the door of prophecy. Some of the predictions are unerringly accurate, so precise that there are no factors of coincidence or lucky guesswork. The ultra-terrestrials, or elementals, are able to convince their friends, who sometimes also become victims, that they have complete foreknowledge of human events. Then, when these people are totally sold, the ultra-terrestrials introduce a joker into the deck. Tell me if you've heard this one before. A young, charming, charismatic leader steps forward bearing accurate prophecies of times to come. Soon enough, they predict a great calamity or even a full apocalypse and gather to their side a cult of loyal believers who wait on bated breath for the prophesized day. And they wait and they wait and nothing happens, prompting the world at large to label the poor fool a fraud and hence disregard everything he ever said. And if the game ended there, it would be little more than a cruel trick. But as Keel points out, there is another stage which sometimes happens after the contactee has been labeled a fraud. Acts of incredible violence. As an example, Aladino Felix of Brazil was a regular UFO contactee. The entities, who would show up at his house, began by telling him much about the cosmos and the ultimate nature of reality. This eventually led to the drafting of a book, in which he accurately predicted the assassinations of both Martin Luther King Jr. and Senator Kennedy, earning him a large contingent of followers. Then, he warned of a cataclysmic earthquake that would soon sink the city of Rio de Janeiro into the ocean, which thankfully also never came to pass. He was labeled a fraud, and a short time later, he shared one last prophecy, predicting a wave of terrorist attacks across Brazil. A prediction which came true as a string of murders, bombings, and assassinations swept the country. However, when police finally got to the center of the operation, they found the ringleader was none other than Aladino Felix. And he isn't alone. Contactee Fred Evans in Cleveland, after he was slapped with the fraud label, was found to be the ringleader of a group of malicious snipers who used the 1968 riots as cover to kill 10 people and wound 19. Could this be the natural result of men's minds breaking under the social stigma they faced? Or were they deliberately led to such extreme actions by an outside force? In the final chapter of the book, titled You Can't Tell the Players Without a Scorecard, Keel synthesizes all we have learned thus far in an attempt to understand the true goals of the ultra-terrestrials. Reiterating his theory from the beginning of the book, he argues, quote, They are our next-door neighbors, part of another space-time continuum where life, matter, and energy are radically different from ours. Ancient man knew this and recognized it. The original biblical text employed the word sheol, which means invisible world. However, the translators turned this into hell and gave it an entirely different meaning. And, Keel argues, it is a world which the ultra-terrestrials would prefer stay invisible, as he attributes most stories of government censorship or intimidation of UFO witnesses to the phenomenon itself. It is they who appear at witnesses' doors, wearing Air Force uniforms bearing names of soldiers who never existed. 
And it is they who don black suits and hop in factory-fresh Cadillacs to stalk UFO contactees. Besides ensuring their secrecy, Keel argues this tactic is a clear attempt to sow distrust in the government, hence reducing the chances of witnesses coming forward at all. Rather, Keel believes that the government is relatively innocent in these affairs, their only crime being that they have not shared what they know, as he believes they drew the same conclusion he did all the way back in 1952. During January of that year, the fledgling CIA organized a panel of top scientists to review Project Blue Book data. Their conclusions, declassified in 1966, were that there is no point in investigating sightings, as they likely always have and always will occur. Rather, the danger came from fostering public interest in the phenomenon, which may cause hysteria or even draw the phenomenon to them. As such, they suggested a robust program of debunking to systematically destroy the mystique surrounding UFOs, an effort which I would argue was a wild success. As he notes, quote, no responsible government could really attempt to explain this bizarre situation to the general public. Our military establishment has therefore been forced to follow a simpler policy, denying the reality of the phenomenon without trying to explain it. If flying saucers are a cosmic hoax, then it follows naturally that many of man's basic beliefs may be based on similar hoaxes. No government is willing to expose those beliefs or become involved in the terrible controversies that would result from such exposure. As for the ultra-terrestrials themselves, Keel admits he is at a loss. The wealth of data is more than one man can take, and he advocates strongly for an organization of philosophers and scientists to be convened to decode the enigmatic activities of the non-people. Though, if he had to guess, Keel believes that the manifestations we see are only a small part of some greater mechanism, or conflict, which is occurring in the greater reality beyond our perceptible range. A conflict in which humanity plays some small role. It could be that they intend to lead us back into the Dark Ages, or towards some fantastic future we can scarcely imagine. But regardless of intent, billions of people on this planet are playing their game. They're playing it when they worship in temples, they're playing it when they go saucer chasing, and they're playing it every time they hear a bump in the night and think monster. If Keel is right, even we here at Noctivigant are playing their game as we record this episode. As are you, dear listener, sitting at home, your desk, or your car, listening to us, unaware of the watchful eyes of the ultra-terrestrials, or what games they have in store for you. Which brings us to our final discussion question. On an ominous note. Felt appropriate for John Keel. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so it's been almost a year since the launch of our show, and we have once again returned to Keel. Taking a fresh look at his ultra-terrestrial theory, now armed with the other material we have covered, have your opinions changed at all since we read the Mothman prophecies? And if so, how? Oh, God, yeah. Like, just in general, my, theory, my, my, my theories have changed a whole bunch. Um, or my thoughts on the, the phenomenon in general have changed a whole bunch. But um, I, I think ultimately, for me, oh, reminiscing thinking I'd have to actually go back and listen to the episode to see where my head was actually at. Um, but I think like the, the biggest change for me over this time is coming to grips with the idea that reality may not be everything that I see. Cause that has been really hard for me to grasp or accept. Um, but the more that we dive into all of this, 
the more that we learn about consciousness and everything that relates to the phenomenon, I'm getting more and more in tune with the idea. I don't want to say simulation because I actually, I really hate that comparison because I don't, I, I don't think it's anything like that. I don't think we're sleeping, you know, and that everything is just, you know, designed for it. No, I don't think that um, at all. Um, but I do think that there is more happening around us that we can't perceive. Um, and that, and that has been really, that was, that's been really hard for my mind to, to, to wrap around, you know, and I, I've, I've come to grips with it for the most part. I don't like the idea that there's a lot of things happening around me that I can't perceive. It makes me uncomfortable, but I can't really argue with all of the everything that we've read that that is that that says that that's true you know um and like i guess looking at the ultra terrestrial theory just in general i think there's a lot of weight to it i think it's hard to argue with keel he's backed everything that he says here with with data um and as I am a person that likes data, that's, that's, it's hard to argue with it, especially because he draws conclusions that make sense. Just like in Passport to Magonia, it, it's hard to argue with, with, with Jacques Vallée drawing some wild conclusions because he spells it out for you so obviously, you know, and John Keel does the same thing. It, it's hard to, it's hard to argue, uh, you know, that some of these stories that you may have grown up hearing. I mean, fuck, John Keel even talks about Rumpelstiltskin in here. And uh, I, 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 just some of the weirdest comparisons in the world. But when you sit back and you look at it and you take what you, you, you take the perspective of this is how they're, you know, they, they're writing their understanding from, from their time frame, and then draw and then go and that how easily that could just be their way of describing XYZ. So, okay. I, I can't argue that because it makes sense. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, you know, it, it really, it comes, it comes from the basis of, I think really a lot of people are going to, would struggle with it because there's, there seems to be a fundamental schism in a lot of people's minds that the people who are willing to entertain theories like this usually come, come from the point of view of most people are reporting, you know, truthfully what they experience. And yes, there will be some liars, but on the whole, most of humanity are honest about this sort of stuff. Um, and that allows you to, you know, uh, believe this sort of stuff because you believe that ancient people had an experience and tried their best to put uh, their own frame of reference on it. Whereas I think the other side, I think there's a lot of people who are willing to believe flat out that everything anyone tells them is a lie, that that it doesn't matter if I did not see it, it's not real. Or if I can't prove it with math, it's not real. And because of that, anything that's historical is invalid. Yeah. And because history is written is history is written by the victors. It's often manipulated or mythologized, especially. And then you get into folklore and myth, which is even on shakier ground. Yeah. Than than just straight up history. And I I think that ultimately that is going to be the d divider on if you can groove with Keel or not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, like the you know the idea of having to separate bias and, and all that um we, we we really do have to make an active effort 
in I, I mean, not we're not we're not like we've said, we're never going to be able to get rid of it. But it's, I guess, being able to find it within yourself to be able to acknowledge the biases and everything that's happening so that you can take a step back and actually analyze what it is that we're we're looking at. Because ultimately, we don't know. But there is something happening here. And maybe it's ultra-terrestrials. Maybe it's, it, it, maybe it's not. I don't know. But I think... It's sentient fungus that lives in our brains. Maybe, and maybe it's all sprouting from Michigan. Like, <laughs> who the fuck knows? But I... Yeah, I, 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 I think... I think there's a lot of weight to the ultra-terrestrial theory, and I think ultimately I, I believe that that is a, a part of what's happening. I, I like the kitchen sink hypothesis that there's a lot going on, you know, that there's multiple things happening because that makes the most sense. Whoa. Um, but I, I can't, I've, I've seen things that, that seem to, uh, to hold to this idea, you know, the ultra terrestrial idea. And I can't, I mean, John Keel just put things that I've seen, witnessed, and read into words. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. There you go. I, I'm not sure what your answer was, but I liked everything you said. I, I'm not sure what my answer was either. <laughs> I, uh, I'm pretty sure I talked in circles, but I, because I, how do you, like, I don't. This is what he reduces us to. Yeah. What What about you, Jay? Yeah, my, my opinions have changed. I mean. You know, how many times in this show have I bitterly said I believe in aliens now? Yep. Like, ugh. and again, I know it's ridiculous that I was more willing to believe in ghosts and psychics than aliens. I know that. But g- give me a break here. I'm doing what I, I'm doing my fucking best. Uh, That's all we're doing is our, we're just doing our best. And more specifically, as much as I still find it very fun to be a deeply bitter and suspicious person who is like, no, if an alien shows up in your backyard, you should murder it long before you ask any questions. As much as I think that's a hysterical viewpoint to go through the world with, and it personally entertains me to hold it, I know it's not actually reasonable. and It's not actually what I really believe intellectually anymore. Now I lean closer to you know, what What I've been talking about today of the phenomenon is incapable of malice because it's actually incapable of making decisions. Like, uh, and I'm, I'm still developing my, my frame of reference, my theoretical framework for what goes into that because I, I believe, so I believe that the, the phenomenon itself, the core origin point of all of this stuff is 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 input output it is it is a machine that is incapable of making decisions it is just doing what it is it is just doing what it does and beyond that because i do believe there are creature non-human paraphysical creatures that have free will because i kind of believe in i kind of do subscribe to the idea of i don't want to use the word Tulpa, because that's not it's, it's that Agrigor. that's aggregor. That's that's a much better word. Of I do believe there are entities that are aggregors. If it's just like no uh, enough people agreed that Morrigan is a thing that like basically a crowbar got shoved into that part of the part of the phenomenon, and she was just kind of pried loose from it, and now she's a thing. Like I I 
Isn't that just all gods? No, that yeah, that's literally what I'm saying. Like yeah, she I was know. just the primary example. Um, yeah, and so beyond that, of like the things that are acting beyond the phenomenon and the possibility that there are other things that are at the subject to the whims of the phenomenon, like let's just call them extraterrestrials, the the space PETA conservationists. Uh, space PETA conservationists. <laughs> I fucking love that. Space PETA. Space PETA. I now a subsidiary I, of Space Force. <laughs> oh God. I'm I'm trying to become better at subscribing their actions to something more analogous to well-meaning stupidity than true malice. Just because how many things have 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 human beings in the privileged West destroyed because we thought we were helping? Right. Like how many how many times has this plucky group of rebels in a distant land been like, help us overthrow our government? It's like, here, babies, have some guns. Oh, you did a fascism. Oh, no. Like you're scolding a toddler. Oh, God damn it, boy, you did a fascism. You go to your room. Stop doing fascism. No dinner <laughs> until democracy's restored. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's what we call an economic sanction. Oh, God. Oh, oh that's... Oh, no, oh, I can't. That strikes so different right now. <laughs> I'm the fucking worst. Anyway, um, so... So, again, while John Keel absolutely scratches the itch in my brain... That is just like open hostility is the only is the only attitude we should take in inter- any interaction. I'm also learning that's not productive to society or my personal mental health. <laughs> and I'm moderately less depressed than I was when we started this podcast. So, yeah, I'm trying to subscribe more to the phenomenon itself is incapable of malice and the entities that are capable of malice are likely not malicious is a default and even the ones that are malicious might just be stupid teenagers that don't realize they're causing actual harm mm-hmm. yeah i i mean I, I think me personally um i think me personally i am in largely at the same and not at the same spot i was and not because i at the start of the show didn't know what was true and what wasn't, and I still don't know what's true and it isn't. I do think I will say more is on the table now than mm-hmm. was when we started. There are more options that I have earnestly considered. Um, I think my relationship with Keel has changed just a little in that I don't know, like I I was inter- very why I was entertained by Keel. I was kind of almost enamored with this sort of mythic figure that he cut of himself. And throughout our discussions, the more that we've continued to look at the lives of people who've delved into this world, uh, the more you can see that Keel was just, I think, honestly, I think Keel was just as lost as all of us. Oh, yeah. I think think this is a great idea. And he did a really good job of arguing for his idea. Um, But we come back to the we come back to the problem. We don't know what we don't know. That said, uh, I think his idea of window areas yeah. is going to be sticking with me for a while. That was oh, one of yeah. the that I mean, I've heard of window areas. I've done reading about it. But I think he explained them best. Yeah. 
And I really like the idea that what if these things are always around, but around these areas of high electromagnetic energy, they uh, kind of may have get forcibly shifted down to a lower frequency. Maybe they yeah. get pulled somehow. And that's why we can see them there. Um, and it's possible. I, I don't, again, I come back to, I don't know what's going on. I do think there is no way it's all one thing. Uh, and, and the, unless, you know, again, we go back to that argument of God technology of beaming, whatever we want into your brain. And if that's true, nothing we say, or will ever say on this show will bear any fruit, but, uh, but that said, I, I don't think that it's all the same thing. And in fact, I think it's probably more likely that even if the ultra terrestrial theory is true, that there are factions within them or there are types in the sense of, well, these ones, even if we go with the uh, input output analogy there, what if the, oh, these ones are tied to a different input stream. They're tied to humanity's malice. Whereas these ones over here are tied to our joy. And, and maybe that they're split up like that because there does seem to be uh, conflicting agendas at play in a lot of ufology. Now, again, that could be the game, but I, I personally think that, uh, think that it's more likely there are multiple things, but more importantly, one thing that I think Keel reminds us of, uh, is that it's important to maintain that, that mystery in your heart in a way. And, and because if we had, after a year of this show, uh, arrived at a conclusion that we believed in fully. And it's not even like a theory we're entertained, but like, this is what I think it is. Then we would have failed to heed his advice. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. Uh, I think that maybe being confused about this stuff is okay. And that should be our default state regarding it, at least at the stage we're at right now, for all we know, the actual truth would melt our brains out of our eyes. Like, uh, like we drank from the wrong cup in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. Yeah, very well said there. I was that was very well articulated. Your words. I do that. I'm good at words and stuff. Yeah, it's like you have multiple degrees. I got shiny stuff. paper. Make me good. Do good word. Yeah. I. Oh man, and this book had is had my brain going. The uh, you know obviously the entire time that we've been reading it, which is better than you have been because you've just been in a vegetative coma for months. What? Oh, don't worry about it. It's November. What? <laughs> wow. Oh, I missed man. my birthday. Yeah, Aww. weren't you wondering how why all, why your legs were atrophied and you felt like you were dying? Yeah, I I mean I I am now. Yeah. I mean because that didn't go away. Don't worry, we weakened at Bernie's youth through the whole thing. Um, That's good. You're, you're, Do I still have my job? Your company's still paying you? Um Thank God. I don't uh it just it just jump cuts to your desk and it's just Murphy sitting there smacking <laughs> the keys. <laughs> Oh, they'd love him too, so that works. I mean, they'd kill they'd kill one of my coworkers because he is super allergic to cats. But I have eliminated the weak link. <laughs> <laughs> I will be collecting his salary too, as tribute to my fatness. I mean, I'm, I'd take the money right now. All right, we ready to move to our about the author? Let's do it. Yeah, okay, I have. This is uh, some of the same stuff as when we did Mothman prophecies, but I've done my best to expand it. So. He was born in Hornell, New York on March 25th, 1930. Uh, he was born John Alva Keel, spelled K-I-E-H-L-E, -E, but he later changed it to John Alva Keel, spelled K-E-E-L. Uh, his father was a small-time band leader, and after the separation of his parents, he was raised by his grandparents. 
As a child, he fostered an interest in science fiction and stage magic and left school at the age of 16 after passing all available science courses. Uh, He went to New York City in search of a career as a writer, beginning in journalism, and later he was drafted into the Korean War, where he made it clear that he refused to shoot anyone. As such, he was made chief of continuity and production in Frankfurt, Germany, a.k.a. that's where he wrote propaganda for the U.S. Army. Yay! Lies! He saw his first UFO in Egypt. Uh, Here's the quote from him. The thing I saw was Saturn-shaped and appeared the center was not moving, but the outside was spinning. It was a very off thing and various people were looking at it with me. He spent three years adventuring around the world after the military, largely through the Middle East and Asia, chasing odd stories and the paranormal, once spending several snowbogged weeks hunting the elusive Himalayan Yeti. During this time, he also became an impressive stage magician, learned snake charming from the Sampwalas in Delhi, he spent Halloween night 1952 alone in the original Frankenstein castle, and he did an armed forces radio broadcast from inside the Great Pyramid of Giza. He published an autobiography detailing these events titled Jadu at age 27. He then came home and worked for movies and TV companies as a scriptwriter and as a joke writer for notable comedians, including Johnny Carson. Uh, he got an opportunity to pitch a UFO story to Playboy and was awarded the chance to write an article about the UFO craze that was sweeping the nation through the 1950s. After that, he hurled himself into the UFO world and never looked back. Over the course of his life, he published an insane amount of books, and here is just a a sampling of the titles. Strange Mutants of the 21st Century, A Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings, Our Haunted Planet, Strange Creatures from Beyond Time and Space, Disneyland of the Gods, The Mothman Prophecies, The Eighth Tower, The Cosmic Question, The Fickle Finger of Fate, which is a raunchy parody novel. Uh, He also wrote the novelization for the 2002 movie, The Mothman Prophecies. And he also wrote several more. However, many of them are now out of print or were only ever produced in small batches to sell at conventions. And as such, good luck. (laughs) He died on July 3rd, 2009 in New York City of congestive heart failure. He was 79 years old and a lifelong bachelor. And in the acknowledgement section of this book, he ends with, quote, Lastly, this book is dedicated to Leakuan. In these past four years, I have learned how he must have felt. Leakuan was the Trojan man who, in the Trojan horse legend, begged his fellow men to burn the horse rather than let it through the gates. The gods sent serpents to strangle him and his sons in response. Which I think is a pretty apt description for everything John Keel ever experienced. (laughs) (laughs) That is so... Uh, yes. <laughs> I don't even know what else to say. When you said the god sent serpents to strangle him because he tried to chill, guys, we should wa- we should think about this. It's like, oh, of course they fucking did. Tired of these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking saucer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, God. And with that, are we ready to go into housekeeping? Yes, we will go to housekeeping after referencing that awful movie. Yeah. All right. Well, if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe on whatever podcasting platform that you're listening to us on and if it is spotify or apple please leave us a five-star review it actually really does help us and uh if you like what you heard then you want to hear more and we want to spread the word so go ahead and do that and leave us a review but also if you want to follow us on uh, social media you can give us a follow on twitter at an pod and i am at mix roy wicks i am at bearish terror i'm at midwest undead 
And we also have an Instagram that I occasionally post photos of our animals on, uh, and that is Noctivian underscore podcast. Uh, we also have a Tumblr account that is largely inactive, but I'm trying to get back on it. It's called Noctivigate Podcast, and it's just memes. There is also a Reddit account. You guys can contact us through there called Noctivigate Podcast. And if you did want to send us an email on anything, be it reviews, just general words of love and affection. Curse words. Curse words, also acceptable. Aggressive corrections of any assertion I have ever made about any world religion. I welcome those. Please, please educate me. Or if you just want to shoot us an email for whatever reason, you can do that. Noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com. I think that's it. I think that's it, yeah. I feel like I'm missing something. Uh, you could follow me personally on TikTok, Roy Wicks. I'm not going to do that. Okay. It would involve me downloading TikTok. I, it's fun. Fun platform. I'm, I'm sure it is. I just don't have the strength. I'm not giving you people my Spotify. Well, no. No. But that's, that, that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. Okay. So lead us out of here, Nick. All right. Good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe on the midnight roads. Don't get lost. Maybe you should, though. God damn it. We have cake. <laughs> no, they don't. fairness i'm not actually going to put them in dog kennels they're much larger cages long enough for them to lay down they can't stand up but they can lay down and you know, i'll have one of those hamster bottles for water and i'll just fill that with vodka they'll never know where they are